This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. It's fuzzy. It's woolly. I know it's summertime, but you know what's nice? Uh, something to get for someone later this year. Uh, maybe something to wear around your cold apartment uh, in the early mornings. Uh, maybe you've got cold concrete floors. Maybe you live in New Zealand or Chile or someone else, bleh, somewhere else that's cool this time of year. Who knows? But uh, BunnySlippers.com has a wide array of slippers to choose from, all kinds of interests and animals and all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You'll find something you'll like at BunnySlippers.com. Yeah, it's that simple, BunnySlippers.com. Highland Cow Slipper, it's a big woolly bull, and I love my Highland Cow Slippers. Wear them all the time in the studio, which does have a chilly floor even in the summer, especially when I crank up the AC, because I'm a baby when it comes to heat. Unless I'm working in a kitchen, then I forget to drink water and pass out uh, sometime around 12 hours. <laughs> anyway, that's one reason DB Spitzer doesn't work in kitchens much anymore. Uh, let's also talk about this month uh, is the end of June, and we're going to finish that up with some W.E.B. Du Bois. So if you hear any noise, it's just me and Du Bois. Hit me. Um, so, yeah. And that was a uh, Parliament uh, reference. And if you want to learn more about Parliament, go to your local library or check this out. Alexa, play Parliament. Siri, play Parliament. And now, now you know, <laughs> somewhere in your house, maybe, uh, a robot is playing music for you. Enjoy. So here we go. Uh, this show is always brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and listeners like you buying our cool t-shirts that you'll find on PGTTCM.com. You can check the show notes to find out where to go, or you can just simply, I don't know, find us on Facebook. We've got a link somewhere to somewhere. You buy shirts. It keeps the show going. Makes me happy. Makes you happy. Everyone gets something. We also have a Patreon thing going on and a patron thing going on. Not really much going on with either of those, so do what you want with those. Text me, let me know if you do subscribe to any of those so I can mention your name and say, hey, check this person out. Also, if you have questions about anything about the show, if you want to talk about anything, we've got a contact form at pgttcm.com. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere um, that you find your podcasts. I recommend Apple because that's where I get all my feedback from. All right, thank you. Here we go. The Quest of the Silver Fleece. By W. E. B. Du Bose. Chapter 36 The Land Colonel Cresswell started all the more grimly to overthrow the new work at the school, because somewhere down beneath his heart a pity and a wonder were stirring, a pity at the perfectly useless struggle to raise the unraisable, a wonder at certain signs of rising. But it was impossible, and unthinkable, even if possible. So he squared his jaw and cheated Zora deliberately in the matter of the cut timber. He placed every obstacle in the way of getting tenants for the school land. Here Johnson, the faithful nigger, was of incalculable assistance. He was among the first to hear the call for prospective tenants. 
The meeting was in the big room of Zora's house, and Aunt Rachel came early with her cheery voice and smile, which faded so quickly to lines of sorrow and despair, and then twinkled back again. After her hobbled old Sykes. Fully a half hour later, Rob hurried in. Johnson, he informed the others, has sneaked over to Cresswell's to tell of this meeting. We ought to beat that nigger up. But Zora asked him about the new baby, and he was soon deep in child lore. Higgins and Sanders came together, dirty, apologetic, and furtive. Then came Johnson. How do, Miss Zora? Mr. Alwyn? I sure is glad to see you, sir. Well, if there ain't Aunt Rachel, looking as young as ever. And Higgins, you scamp. Ah, Mr. Sanders. Well, gentlemen and ladies, this is sure going to be a good cotton season. I remember. And then he ran on endlessly. Now to this one, now to that, now to all, his little eyes all the while dancing insinuatingly here and there. About nine o'clock, a buggy drove up, and Carter and Simpson came in. Carter, a silent, strong-faced, brown laborer, who listened and looked, and Simpson, a worried, nervous man, who sat still with difficulty, and commenced many sentences, but did not finish them. Alwyn looked at his watch and at Zora, but she gave no sign until they heard a rollicking song outside, and Tyler burst into the room. He was nearly seven feet high and broad-shouldered, yellow, with curling hair and laughing brown eyes. He was chewing an enormous quid of tobacco, the juice of which he distributed generously, and he had had just liquor enough to make him jolly. His entrance was a breeze and a roar. Alwyn then undertook to explain the land scheme. It is the best land in the county. When it's cleared, interrupted Johnson, and Simpson looked alarmed. It is partially cleared, continued Alwyn, and our plan is to sell off small twenty-acre farms. You can't do nothing on twenty acres, began Johnson, but Tyler laid his huge hand over his mouth and said briefly, Shut up. Alwyn started again. We shall sell a few twenty-acre farms but keep one central plantation of one hundred acres for the school. Here, Miss Zora will carry on her work, and the school will run a model farm with your help. We want to center here agencies to make life better. We want all sorts of industries. We want a little hospital with a resident physician and two or three nurses. We want a cooperative store for buying supplies. We want a cotton gin and sawmill and in the future other things. This land here, as I have said, is the richest around. We want to keep this hundred acres for the public good and not sell it. We are going to deed it to a board of trustees, and those trustees are to be chosen from the ones who buy the small farms. Who's going to get what's made on this land? asked Sanders. All of us. It's going first to pay for the land, then to support the home and the school, and then to furnish capital for industries. Johnson sniggered. You mean you're going to live off of it? Yes, answered Alwyn, but I'm going to work for it. Who's going? began Simpson, but he stopped helplessly. 
Who's going to tend this land? asked the practical Carter. All of us. Each man is going to promise us so many days' work a year, and we're going to ask others to help. The women and girls and school children. They will all help. Can you put trust in that sort of help? We can when once the community learns that it pays. Does you own the land? asked Johnson suddenly. No, we're buying it, and it's part paid for already. The discussion became general. Zora moved about among the men, whispering and explaining, while Johnson moved too, objecting and hinting. At last he arose. Brethren, he began, the plan's good enough for talking, but you can't work it. Who ever heard tell of such a thing? First place, the land ain't yours. Second place, you can't get it worked. Third place, white folks won't allow it. Who ever heard of such working land on shares? You do it for white folks each day. Why not for yourselves? Alwyn pointed out. Cause we ain't white and we can't do nothing like that. Tyler was asleep and snoring and the others looked doubtfully at each other. It was a proposal a little too daring for them, a bit too far beyond their experience. One consideration alone kept them from shrinking away, and that was Zora's influence. Not a man was there whom she had not helped and encouraged, nor who had not perfect faith in her, in her impetuous hope, her deep enthusiasm, and her strong will. Even her defects, the hard-held temper, the deeply rooted dislikes, caught their imagination. Finally, after several other meetings, five men took courage, three of the best and two of the weakest. During the spring, long negotiations were entered into by Miss Smith to buy the five men. Colonel Cresswell and Mr. Tolliver had them all charged with large sums of indebtedness, and these sums had to be assumed by the school. As Colonel Cresswell counted over $2,000 of school notes and deposited them beside the mortgage, he smiled grimly, for he saw the end. Yet, even then, his hand trembled, and that curious doubt came creeping back. He put it aside angrily and glanced up. "'Nigger wants to talk with you,' announced his clerk. The colonel sauntered out and found Bless Alwyn waiting. Colonel Cresswell, he said, I have charge of the buying for the school and our tenants this year, and I naturally want to do the best possible. I thought I'd come over and see about getting my supplies at your store. That's all right. You can get anything you want, said Colonel Cresswell cheerily, for this, to his mind, was evidence of sense on the part of the Negroes. Bless showed his list of needed supplies, seeds, meat, cornmeal, coffee, sugar, etc. The colonel glanced over it carelessly and then moved away. All right, come and get what you want any time, he called back. But about the prices, said Alwyn, following him. Oh, they'll be all right. Of course, but what I want is an estimate of your lowest cash prices. Cash? Yes, sir. Cresswell thought a while. Such a businesslike proposition from Negroes surprised him. Well, I'll let you know, he said. It was nearly a week later before Alwyn approached him again. 
Now see here, said Colonel Cresswell, there's practically no difference between cash and time prices. We buy our stock on time, and you can just as well take advantage of this as not. I have figured out about what these things will cost. The best thing for you to do is to make a deposit here and get things when you want them. If you make a good deposit, I'll throw off 10%, which is all of my profit. Thank you, said Alwyn, but he looked over the account and found the whole bill at least twice as large as he had expected. Without further parley, he made some excuse and started to town while Mr. Cresswell went to the telephone. In town, Alwyn went to all the chief merchants one after another and received, to his great surprise, practically the same estimate. He could not understand it. He had estimated the current market prices according to the Montgomery paper, yet the prices in Toomsville were fifty to a hundred and fifty percent higher. The merchant to whom he went last laughed. Don't you know we're not going to interfere with Colonel Cresswell's tenants? He stated the dealer's attitude, and Alwyn saw light. He went home and told Zora, and she listened without surprise. Now to business, she said briskly, Miss Smith, turning to the teacher. As I told you, they're combining against us in town, and we must buy in Montgomery. I was sure it was coming, but I wanted to give Colonel Cresswell every chance. Bless starts for Montgomery. Alwyn looked up. Does he? he asked, smiling. Yes, said Zora, smiling in return. We must lose no further time. But there's no train from Toomsville tonight. But there's one from Barton in the morning, and Barton is only twenty miles away. It is a long walk, Alwyn thought a while silently. Then he rose. I'm going, he said. Goodbye. In less than a week, the storehouse was full and the tenants were at work. The twenty acres of cleared swampland, attended to by voluntary labor of all the tenants, was soon bearing a magnificent crop. Colonel Cresswell inspected all the crops daily with a proprietary air that would have been natural had these folks been simply tenants, and as such he persisted in regarding them. The cotton now growing was perhaps not so uniformly fine as the first acre of silver fleece, but it was of unusual height and thickness. At least a bale to the acre, Alwyn estimated, and the colonel mentally determined to take two-thirds of the crop. After that, he decided that he would evict Sora immediately, since sufficient land was cleared already for his purposes, and moreover, he had seen with consternation a herd of cattle grazing in one field on some early green stuff, and he heard a drove of hogs in the swamp. Such an example before the tenants of the Black Belt would be fatal. He must wait a few weeks for them to pick the cotton, then the end. He was fighting the battle of his color and caste. The children sang merrily in the brown-white field. The wide baskets poised aloft, foamed on the erect and swaying bodies of the dark carriers. The crop throughout the land was short that year, for prices had ruled low last season in accordance with the policy of the Combine. This year they started high again. Would they fall? Many thought so, and hastened to sell. 
Zora and Alwyn gathered their tenants' crops, ginned them at the Cresswell Gin, and carried their cotton to town, where it was deposited in the warehouse of the Farmers' League. Now, said Alwyn, we would best sell while prices are high. Zora laughed at him frankly. We can't, she said. Don't you know that Colonel Cresswell will attach our cotton for rent as soon as it touches the warehouse? But it's ours. Nothing is ours. No black man ordinarily can sell his crop without a white creditor's consent. Alwyn fumed. The best way, he declared, is to go to Montgomery and get a first-class lawyer and just fight the thing through. The land is legally ours, and he has no right to our cotton. Yes, but you must remember that no man like Colonel Cresswell regards a business bargain with a colored man as binding. No white man under ordinary circumstances will help enforce such a bargain against prevailing public opinion. But if we cannot trust the justice of the case, and if you knew we couldn't, why did you try? Because I had to try, and moreover, the circumstances are not altogether ordinary. The men in power in Toomsville are not the landlords of this county. They are poor whites. The judge and the sheriff were both elected by mill hands, who hate Cresswell and Taylor. Then there's a new young lawyer who wants Harry Cresswell's seat in Congress. He don't know much law, I'm afraid, but what he don't know of this case, I think I do. I'll get his advice, and then I mean to conduct the case myself, Zora calmly concluded. Without a lawyer? Bless Alwyn stared in amazement. Without a lawyer in court? Zora, that would be foolish. Is it? Let's think. For over a year now, I have been studying the law of the case, and she pointed to her law books. I know the law and most of the decisions. Moreover, as a black woman fighting a hopeless battle with landlords, I'll gain the one thing lacking. What's that? The sympathy of the court and the bystanders. Pshaw, from these Southerners? Yes, from them. They are very human, these men, especially the laborers. Their prejudices are cruel enough, but there are joints in their armor. They are used to seeing us either scared or blindly angry, and they understand how to handle us then. But at other times, it is hard for them to do anything but meet us in a human way. But Zora, think of the contact of the court, the humiliation, the coarse talk. Zora put up her hand and lightly touched his arm. Looking at him, she said, Mud doesn't hurt much. This is my duty. Let me do it. His eyes fell before the shadow of a deeper rebuke. He arose heavily. Very well, he acquiesced as he passed slowly out. The young lawyer started to refuse to touch the case until he saw, or did Zora adroitly make him see, a chance for eventual political capital. They went over the matter carefully, and the lawyer acquired a respect for the young woman's knowledge. First, he said, get an injunction on the cotton, then go to court, and to ensure the matter, he slipped over and saw the judge. Colonel Cresswell, next day, stalked angrily into his lawyer's office. See here, he thundered, handing the lawyer the notice of the injunction. See the judge, began the lawyer. 
and then remembered, as he was often forced to do these days, who was judge. He inquired carefully into the case and examined the papers. Then he said, Colonel Cresswell, who drew this contract of sale? The black girl did. Impossible. She certainly did, wrote it in my presence. Well, it's mighty well done. You mean it will stand in law? It certainly will. There's but one way to break it, and that's to allege misunderstanding on your part. Cresswell winced. It was not pleasant to go into open court and acknowledge himself overreached by a Negro, but several thousand dollars in cotton and land were at stake. Go ahead, he concurred. You can depend on Taylor, of course, added the lawyer. Of course, answered Cresswell. But why prolong the thing? You see, she's got your cotton tied by injunction. I don't see how she did it. Easy enough. This judge is the poor white you opposed in the last primary. Within a week, the case was called, and they filed into the courtroom. Cresswell's lawyer saw only this black woman. No other lawyer or sign of one appeared to represent her. The place was soon filled with a lazy, tobacco-chewing throng of white men. A few blacks whispered in one corner. The dirty stove was glowing with pine wood, and the judge sat at a desk. "'Where's your lawyer?' he asked sharply of Zora. "'I have none,' returned Zora, rising. There came a silence in the court. Her voice was low, and the men leaned forward to listen. The judge felt impelled to be over-gruff. "'Get a lawyer,' he ordered. "'Your Honor, my case is simple, and with your Honor's permission, I wish to conduct it myself. I cannot afford a lawyer, and I do not think I need one.' Cresswell's lawyer smiled and leaned back. It was going to be easier than he supposed. Evidently, the woman believed she had no case and was weakening. The trial proceeded, and Zora stated her contention. She told how long her mother and grandmother had served the Cresswells, and showed her receipt for rent paid. A friend sent me some money. I went to Mr. Cresswell and asked him to sell me two hundred acres of land. He consented to do so, and signed this contract in the presence of his son-in-law. Just then, John Taylor came into the court, and Cresswell beckoned to him. "'I want you to help me out, John.' "'All right,' whispered Taylor. "'What can I do?' "'Swear that Cresswell didn't mean to sign this,' said the lawyer quickly, as he arose to address the court. Taylor looked at the paper blankly, and then at Cresswell, and some inkling of the irreconcilable difference in the two natures leaped into both their hearts." Cresswell might gamble and drink and lie like a gentleman, but he would never willingly cheat or take advantage of a white man's financial necessities. Taylor, on the other hand, had a horror of a lie, never drank nor played games of chance, but his whole life was speculation, and in the business game he was utterly ruthless and respected no one. Such men could never thoroughly understand each other, to Cresswell, a man who had cheated the whole South out of millions by a series of misrepresentations, ought to regard this little falsehood as nothing. Meantime, Colonel Cresswell's lawyer was on his feet, 
and he adopted his most irritating and contemptuous manner. This nigger wench wrote out some illegible stuff, and Colonel Cresswell signed it to get rid of her. We are not going to question the legality of the form. That is neither here nor there. The point is, Mr. Cresswell never intended, never dreamed of selling this wench land right in front of his door. He meant to rent her the land and sign a receipt for rent paid in advance. I will not worry, Your Honor, by a long argument to prove this, but just call one of the witnesses well known to you, Mr. John Taylor of the Toomsville Mills. Taylor looked toward the door and then slowly took the stand. Mr. Taylor, said the lawyer carelessly, were you present at this transaction? Yes. Did you see Colonel Cresswell sign this paper? Yes. Well, did he intend, so far as you know, to sign such a paper? I do not know his intentions. Did he say he meant to sign such a contract? Taylor hesitated. Yes, he finally answered. Colonel Cresswell looked up in amazement, and the lawyer dropped his glasses. I, I don't think you perhaps understood me, Mr. Taylor, he gasped. I er, meant to ask if Colonel Cresswell, in signing this paper, meant to sign a contract to sell this wench two hundred acres of land. He said he did, reiterated Taylor, although I ought to add that he did not think the girl would ever be able to pay. If he had thought she would pay, I don't think he would have signed the paper. Colonel Cresswell went red, then pale, and leaning forward before the whole court, he hurled, You damned scoundrel! The judge rapped for order and fidgeted in his seat. There was some confusion and snickering in the courtroom. Finally, the judge plucked up courage. The defendant is ordered to deliver this cotton to Zora Cresswell, he directed. The raging of Colonel Cresswell's anger now turned against John Taylor as well as the Negroes. Wind of the estrangement flew over town quickly. The poor whites saw a chance to win Taylor's influence, and the sheriff approached him cautiously. Taylor paid him slight courtesy. He was irritated with this devilish Negro problem. He was making money. His wife and babies were enjoying life, and here was this fool trial to upset matters. But the sheriff talked. The thing I'm afraid of, he said, is that Cresswell and his gang will swing in the niggers on us. How do you mean? Let them vote. But they have to read and write. Sure. Well then, said Taylor, it might be a good thing. Colton eyed him suspiciously. You'd let a nigger vote? Why, yes, if he had sense enough. There ain't no niggers got sense. Oh, pshaw, Taylor ejaculated, walking away. The sheriff was angry and mistrustful. He believed he had discovered a deep-laid scheme of the aristocrats to cultivate friendliness between whites and blacks, and then use black voters to crush the whites. Such a course was, in Colton's mind, dangerous, monstrous, and unnatural. It must be stopped at all hazards. He began to whisper among his friends. One or two meetings were held, and the flame of racial prejudice was studiously fanned. The atmosphere of the town and country quickly began to change. Whatever little beginnings of friendship and understanding 
had arisen now quickly disappeared. The town of a Saturday no longer belonged to a happy, careless crowd of black peasants, but the black folk found themselves elbowed to the gutter, while ugly quarrels flashed here and there with a quick arrest of the Negroes. Colonel Cresswell made a sudden resolve. He sent for the sheriff and received him at the Oaks in his most respectable style, filling him with good food and warming him with good liquor. Colton, he asked, are you sending any of your white children to the nigger school yet? What? yelled Colton. The colonel laughed, frankly telling Colton John Taylor's philosophy on the race problem, his willingness to let Negroes vote, his threat to let blacks and whites work together, his contempt for the officials elected by the people. Candidly, Colton, he concluded, I believe in aristocracy. I can't think it right or wise to replace the old aristocracy by new and untried blood. And in a sudden outburst, but by God, sir, I'm a white man, and I placed the lowest white man ever created above the highest darky ever thought of. This Yankee, Taylor, is a nigger lover. He's secretly encouraging and helping them. You saw what he did to me, and I'm warning you in time. Colton's glass dropped. I thought it was you that was corralling the niggers against us, he exclaimed. The colonel reddened. I don't count all white men my equals, I admit, he returned with dignity, but I know the difference between a white man and a nigger. Colton stretched out his massive hand. Put it there, sir, said he. I misjudged you. Colonel Cresswell, I'm a southerner, and I honor the old aristocracy you represent. I'm going to join with you to crush this Yankee and put the niggers in their place. They are getting impudent around here, and they need a lesson, and, by gad, they'll get one they'll remember. Now see here, Colton, nothing rash. The colonel charged him, warningly. Don't stir up needless trouble, but, well, things must change. Colton rose and shook his head. The niggers need a lesson, he muttered, as he unsteadily bade his host goodbye. Cresswell watched him uncomfortably as he rode away, and again a feeling of doubt stirred within him. What new force was he loosening against his black folk, his own black folk, who had lived about him and his father's nigh three hundred years? He saw the huge form of the sheriff loom like an evil spirit a moment on the rise of the road and sink into the night. He turned slowly to his cheerless house, shuddering as he entered the uninviting portals. End of chapter 36 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. DuBose Chapter 37 The Mob When Emma, Bertie's child, came home after a two years' course of study, she had passed from girlhood to young womanhood. She was white and sandy-haired. She was not beautiful, and she appeared to be fragile. But she also looked sweet and good, with that peculiar innocence which peers out upon the world with calm, round eyes, and sees no evil, but does methodically 
It's simple, everyday work. Zora mothered her. Miss Smith found her plenty to do, and Bless thought her a good girl. But Mrs. Cresswell found her perfect and began to scheme to marry her off. For Mary Cresswell, with the restlessness and unhappiness of an unemployed woman, was trying to atone for her former blunders. Her humiliation after the episode at Cresswell Oaks had been complete. It seemed to her that the original cause of her whole life punishment lay in her persistent misunderstanding of the black people and their problem. Zora appeared to her in a new and glorified light, a vigorous, self-sacrificing woman. She knew that Zora had refused to marry Bless, and this again seemed fitting. Zora was not meant for marrying. She was a born leader, wedded to a great cause. She had long outgrown the boy and girl affection. She was the sort of woman she herself might have been if she had not married. Alwyn, on the other hand, needed a wife. He was a great, virile boy, requiring a simple, affectionate mate. No sooner did she see Emma than she was sure that this was the ideal wife. She compared herself with Helen Cresswell. Helen was a contented wife and mother because she was fitted for the position and happy in it, while she, who had aimed so high, had fallen piteously. From such a fate she would save Zora and Bless. Emma's course in nurse training had been simple and short, and there was no resident physician. But Emma, in her unemotional way, was a born nurse and did much good among the sick in the neighborhood. Zora had a small log hospital erected with four white beds, a private room, and an office, which was also Emma's bedroom. The new white physician in town, just fresh from school in Atlanta, became interested and helped with advice and suggestions. Meantime, John Taylor's troubles began to increase. Under the old political regime, it had been an easy matter to avoid serious damage suits for the accidents in the mill. Much child labor and the lack of protective devices made accidents painfully frequent. Taylor insisted that the chief cause was carelessness, while the mill hands alleged criminal neglect on his part. When the new labor officials took charge of the court and the break occurred between Colonel Cresswell and his son-in-law, Taylor found that several damage suits were likely to cost him a considerable sum. He determined not to let the bad feelings go too far, and when a particularly distressing accident to a little girl took place, he showed more than his usual interest and offered to care for her. The new young physician recommended Zora's infirmary as the only near place that offered a chance for the child's recovery. Take her out, Taylor promptly directed. Zora was troubled when the child came. She knew the suspicious temper of the town whites. The very next day, Taylor sent out a second case, a child who had been hurt some time before and was not recovering as she should. Under the care of the little hospital and the gentle nurse, the children improved rapidly, and in two weeks were outdoors 
playing with the little black children, and even creeping into classrooms and listening. The grateful mothers came out twice a week at least, at first with suspicious aloofness, but gradually melting under Zora's tact until they sat and talked with her and told their troubles and struggles. Zora realized how human they were and how like their problems were to hers. They and their children grew to love this busy, thoughtful woman, and Zora's fears were quieted. The catastrophe came suddenly. The sheriff rode by, scowling and hunting for some poor black runaway, when he saw white children in the Negro school and white women, who he knew were mill hands, looking on. He was black with anger. Turning, he galloped back to town. A few hours later, the young physician arrived hastily in a cab to take the women and children to town. He said something in a low tone to Zora and drove away, frowning. Zora came quickly to the school and asked for Alwyn. He was in the barn, and she hurried there. Bless, she said quietly. It is reported that a Toomsville mob will burn the school tonight. Bless stood motionless. I have been fearing it. The sheriff has been stirring up the worst elements in the town lately, and the mills pay off tonight. Well, she said quietly, we must prepare. He looked at her, his face aglow with admiration. You wonder woman, he exclaimed softly. A moment they regarded each other. She saw the love in his eyes, and he saw, rising in hers, something that made his heart bound. But she turned quickly away. You must hurry, Bless. Lives are at stake. And in another moment, he thundered out of the barn on the black mare. Along the pike he flew and up the plantation roads, across broad fields and back again, over to the Barton Pike and along the swamp. At every cabin he whispered a word and left behind him gray faces and whispering children. His horse was reeking with sweat as he staggered again into the schoolyard, but already people were gathering with frightened, anxious, desperate faces. Women with bundles and children, men with guns, tottering old folks, wide-eyed boys and girls. Up from the swampland came the children crying and moaning. The sun was setting. The women and children hurried into the school building, closing the doors and windows. A moment, Alwyn stood without and looked back. The world was peaceful. He could hear the whistle of birds and the sobbing of the breeze in the shadowing oaks. The sky was flashing to dull and purplish blue, and over all lay the twilight hush as though God did not care. He threw back his head and clenched his hands. His soul groaned within him. Heavenly Father, was man ever before set to such a task? Fight? God, if he could but fight. If he could but let go the elemental passions that were leaping and gathering and burning in the eyes of yonder caged and desperate black men. But his hands were tied, manacled. One desperate struggle, a whirl of blood, and the whole world would rise to crush him and his people. The white operator in yonder town had but to flash the news, Negroes killing whites, to bring all the country, 
all the state, all the nation, to red vengeance. It mattered not what the provocation, what the desperate cause. The door suddenly opened behind him, and he wheeled around. Zora, he whispered. Bless, she answered softly, and they went silently in to their people. All at once, from floor to roof, the whole schoolhouse was lighted up, save a dark window here and there. Then someone slipped out into the darkness, and soon watchfire after watchfire flickered and flamed in the night, and then burned vividly, sending up sparks and black smoke. Thus ringed with flaming silence, the school lay at the edge of the great black swamp and waited. Owls hooted in the forest. Afar, the shriek of the Montgomery train was heard across the night, mingling with the wail of a wakeful babe, and then redoubled silence. The men became restless, and Johnson began to edge away toward the lower hall. Alwyn was watching him when a faint noise came to him on the eastern breeze. A low, rumbling murmur. It died away and rose again. Then a distant gunshot woke the echoes. They're coming, he cried. Standing back in the shadow of a front window, he waited. Slowly, intermittently, the murmuring swelled, till it grew, distinguishable, as yelling, cursing, and singing, intermingled with the crash of pistol shots. Far away a flame, as of a burning cabin, arose, and a wilder, louder yell greeted it. Now the tramp of footsteps could be heard, and clearer and thicker the grating and booming of voices, until suddenly, far up the pike, a black moving mass, with glitter and shout, swept into view. They came headlong, guided by pine torches, which threw their white and haggard faces into wild distortion. Then, as bonfire after bonfire met their gaze, they moved slowly and more slowly, and at last sent a volley of bullets at the fires. One bullet flew high and sang through a lighted window. Without a word, Uncle Isaac sank upon the floor and lay still. Silence and renewed murmuring ensued, and the sound of high voices in dispute. Then the mass divided into two wings and slowly encircled the fence of fire. Starting noisily and confidently, and then going more slowly, quietly, warily, as the silence of the flame began to tell on their heated nerves. Strained whispers arose. Careful there. Go on, damn ye. There's someone by yon fire. No, there ain't. See, the bushes move. Bang, bang, bang. Who's that? It's me. Let's rush through and fire the house. And leave a passel of niggers behind to shoot your lights out? Not me. What the hell are you going to do? I don't know yet. I wish I could see a nigger. Hark. Stealthy steps were approaching. A glint of steel flashed behind the firelights. Each band mistook the other for the armed negroes, and the leaders yelled in vain. Human power cannot stay the dashing torrent of fear inspired human panic. Whirling, the mob fled until it struck the road in two confused, surging masses. Then, in quick frenzy, shots flew, 
three men threw up their hands and tumbled limply in the dust, while the main body rushed pell-mell toward town. At early dawn, when the men relaxed from the strain of the night's vigil, Alwyn briefly counseled them, "'Hide your guns.' "'Why?' blustered Rob. "'Haven't I got a right to have a gun?' "'Yes, you have, Rob, but don't be foolish. Hide it. We've not heard the last of this.' But Rob tossed his head belligerently. In town, rumor spread like wildfire. A body of peaceful whites passing through the black settlement had been fired on from ambush, and six killed, no, three killed, no, one killed, and two severely wounded. "'This thing mustn't stop here,' shouted Sheriff Colton. "'These niggers must have a lesson.' And before nine next morning, fully half the grown members of the same mob, now sworn in as deputies, rode with him to search the settlement. They tramped insolently through the school grounds, but there was no shred of evidence until they came to Rob's cabin and found his gun. They tied his hands behind him and marched him toward town. But before the mob arrived the night before, Johnson, feeling that his safety lay in informing the white folks, had crawled with his gun into the swamp. In the morning, he peered out as the cavalcade approached, and not knowing what had happened, he recognized Colton, the sheriff, and signaled to him cautiously. In a moment, a dozen men were on him, and he appealed and explained in vain. The gun was damning evidence. The voices of Rob's wife and children could be heard behind the two men as they were hurried along at a dog trot. The town poured out to greet them. The murderers, the murderers, kill the niggers! And they came on with a rush. The sheriff turned and disappeared in the rear. There was a great cloud of dust, a cry, and a wild scramble as the white and angry faces of men and boys gleamed for a moment and faded. A hundred or more shots rang out. Then, slowly and silently, the mass of women and men were sucked into the streets of the town, leaving but black eddies on the corners to throw backward glances toward the bare, towering pine where swung two red and awful things. The pale boy face of one, with soft brown eyes, glared up sightless to the sun. The dead, leathered bronze of the other was carved in piteous terror. End of chapter 37 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. DuBose Chapter 38 Atonement Three months had flown. It was spring again, and Zora sat in the transformed swamp, now a swamp in name only, beneath the great oak, dreaming, and what she dreamed there in the golden day she dared not formulate even to her own soul. She rose with a start, for there was work to do. Aunt Rachel was ill, and Emma went daily to attend her. Today, as she came back, she brought news that Colonel Cresswell, who had been unwell for several days, was worse. She must send Emma up to help, and as she started toward the school, 
she glanced toward the Cresswell Oaks and saw the armchair of its master on the pillared porch. Colonel Cresswell sat in his chair on the porch alone. As far as he could see, there was no human soul. His eyes were bloodshot, his cheeks sunken, and his breath came in painful gasps. A sort of terror shook him until he heard the distant songs of black folks in the fields. He sighed and lying back, closed his eyes, and the breath came easier. When he opened them again, a white figure was coming up the avenue of the oaks. He watched it greedily. It was Mary Cresswell, and she started when she saw him. "'You're worse, father?' she asked. "'Worse and better,' he replied, smiling cynically. Then suddenly he announced, "'I've made my will.' "'Why? Why?' she stammered. "'Why? Sharply? Because I'm going to die.' She said nothing. He smiled and continued. "'I've got it all fixed. Harry was in a tight place, gambling as usual, and I gave him a lump sum in lieu of all claims. Then I gave John Taylor. You needn't look. I sent for him.' He's a damned scoundrel, but he won't lie, and I needed him. I willed his children all the rest, except for two or three legacies. One was a hundred thousand dollars for you. Oh, father, she cried, I don't deserve it. I reckon two years with Harry was worth about that much, he returned grimly. There's another gift of two hundred thousand dollars, and this house and plantation. Who do you think that's for? Helen? Helen, he raised his hand in threatening anger. I might rot here for all she cares. No, no, but then... I'll not tell you. I... Ah! A spasm of pain shot across his face, and he lay back, white and still. Abruptly, he sat up again and peered down the oaks. Hush, he gasped. Who's that? I don't know. It's a girl... I... He gripped her till she winced. My God, it walks like my wife, I tell you. She held her head so. Who is it? He half rose. Oh, Father, it's nobody but Emma, little Emma, Bertie's child, the mulatto girl. She's a nurse now. I asked to have her come and attend you. Oh, he said, oh. He looked at the girl curiously. Come here. He peered into her white, young face. "'Do you know me?' The girl shrank away from him. "'Yes, sir.' "'What do you do?' "'I teach and nurse at the school.' "'Good. Well, I'm going to give you some money. Do you know why?' A flash of self-consciousness passed over the girl's face. She looked at him with her wide, blue eyes. "'Yes, grandfather,' she faltered. Mrs. Cresswell rose to her feet, but the old man slowly dropped the girl's hand and lay back in his chair with lips half-smiling. Grandfather, he repeated softly. He closed his eyes a space and then opened them. A tremor shivered in his limbs as he stared darkly at the swamp. Hark, he cried harshly. Do you hear the bodies creaking on the limbs? It's Rob and Johnson. I did it. I... Suddenly he rose and stood erect. 
his wild eyes stricken with death, stared full upon Emma. Slowly and thickly he spoke, working his trembling hands. Nell, Nell, is it you, little wife, come back to accuse me? Ah, oh, Nell, don't shrink. I know I have sinned against the light, and the blood of your poor black people is red on these old hands. No, don't put your clean white hands upon me, Nell, till I wash mine. I'll do it, Nell, I'll atone. I'm a Cresswell, yet, Nell, a Cresswell and a je... He swayed. Vainly, he struggled for the word. The shudder of death shook his soul, and he passed. A week after the funeral of Colonel Cresswell, John Taylor drove out to the school and was closeted with Miss Smith. His sister, installed once again for a few days in her old room at the school, understood that he was conferring about Emma's legacy, and she was glad. She was more and more convinced that the marriage of Emma and Bless was the best possible solution of many difficulties. She had asked Emma once if she liked Bless, and Emma had replied in her innocent way, Oh, so much. As for Bless, he was often saying what a dear child Emma was. Neither perhaps realized yet that this was love. But it needed, Mrs. Cresswell was sure, only the lightning flash, and they would know. And who could furnish that illumination better than Zora, the calm, methodical Zora, who knew them so well. As for herself, once she had accomplished the marriage and paid the mortgage on the school out of her legacy, she would go abroad and in travel seek forgetfulness and healing. There had been no formal divorce, and so far as she was concerned, there never would be. But the separation from her husband and America would be forever. Her brother came out of the office, nodded casually, for they had little intercourse these days, and rode away. She rushed in to Miss Smith and found her sitting there, straight, upright, composed in all, save that the tears were streaming down her face, and she was making no effort to stop them. "'Why, Miss Smith,' she faltered. Miss Smith pointed to a paper. Mrs. Cresswell picked it up curiously. It was an official notification to the trustees of the Smith School of a legacy of $200,000, together with the Cresswell House and Plantation. Mrs. Cresswell sat down in open-mouthed astonishment. Twice she tried to speak, but there were so many things to say that she could not choose. "'Tell Zora,' Miss Smith at last managed to say." Zora was dreaming again. Somehow, the old dream life with its glorious fantasies had come silently back, richer and sweeter than ever. There was no tangible reason why, and yet today she had shut herself in her den. She was searching down in the depths of her trunk, and she drew forth that filmy cloud of white, silk-bordered and half-finished to a gown. Why were her eyes wet today? and her mind on the silver fleece. It was an anniversary, and perhaps she still remembered that moment, that supreme moment before the mob. She half slipped on, half wound about her, the white cloud of cloth, standing with parting lips, looking into the long mirror, 
and gleaming in the fading day like a midnight gowned in mist and stars. Abruptly, there came a peremptory knocking at the door. Zora, Zora, sounded Mrs. Cresswell's voice. Forgetting her informal attire, she opened the door, fearing some mishap. Mrs. Cresswell poured out the news. Zora received it in such motionless silence that Mary wondered at her want of feeling. At last, however, she said happily to Zora, Well, the battle's over, isn't it? No, it's just begun. Just begun? echoed Mary in amazement. Think of the servile black folk, the half-awakened restless whites, the fat land waiting for the harvest, the masses panting to know why the battle is scarcely even begun. Yes, I guess that's so, Mary began to comprehend. Well, thank God it has begun, though. Thank God, Zora reverently repeated. Come, let's go back to poor dear Miss Smith, suggested Mary. I can't come just now, but pretty soon. Why, oh, I see, you're trying on something. How pretty and becoming. Well, hurry. As they stood together, the white woman deemed the moment opportune. She slipped her arm about the black woman's waist and began. Zora, I've had something on my mind for a long time, and I shouldn't wonder if you had thought of the same thing. What is it? Bless and Emma. What of them? They're liking for each other. Zora bent a moment and caught up the folds of the fleece. I hadn't noticed it, she said in a low voice. Well, you're busy, you see. They've been very much together. His taking her to her charges and bringing her back and all that. I know they love each other, yet something holds them apart, afraid to show their love. Do you know, I've wondered if, quite unconsciously, it is you. You know, Bless used to imagine himself in love with you, just as he did afterward with Miss Wynne. Miss Wynne? Yes, the Washington girl. But he got over that, and you straightened him out finally. Still, Emma probably thinks yours is the prior claim, knowing, of course, nothing of facts. And Bless knows she thinks of him and you, and I'm convinced, if you say the word, they'd love and marry. Zora walked silently with her to the door, where, looking out, she saw Bless and Emma coming from Aunt Rachel's. He was helping her from the carriage with smiling eyes, and her innocent blue eyes were fastened on him. Zora looked long and searchingly. Please run and tell them of the legacy, she begged. I, I will come in a moment. And Mrs. Cresswell hurried out. Zora turned back steadily to her room and locked herself in. After all, why shouldn't it be? Why had it not occurred to her before in her blindness? If she had wanted him, and, ah, God, was not all her life simply the want of him? Why had she not bound him to her when he had offered himself? Why had she not bound him to her? She knew as she asked, because she had wanted all, not a part, everything, love, respect, and perfect faith. Not one thing could she spare then, not one thing. And now, O oh God, 
She had dreamed that it was all hers, since that night of death and circling flame when they looked at each other soul to soul. But he had not meant anything. It was pity she had seen there, not love, and she rose and walked the room slowly, fast and faster. With trembling hands, she drew the silver fleece around her. Her head swam again, and the blood flashed in her eyes. She heard a calling in the swamp, and the shadow of Elspeth seemed to hover over her, claiming her for her own, dragging her down, down. She rushed through the swamp. The lagoon lay there before her presently, gleaming in the darkness, cold and still, and in it swam an awful shape. She held her burning head. Was not everything plain? Was not everything clear? This was sacrifice. This was the atonement for the unforgiven sin. Emma's was the pure soul which she must offer up to God, for it was God, a cold and mighty God, who had given it to bless her bless. It was well. God willed it. But could she live? Must she live? Did God ask that, too? All at once she stood straight. Her whole body grew tense, alert. She heard no sound behind her, but knew he was there, embraced herself. She must be true. She must be just. She must pay the utmost farthing. Bless, she called faintly, but did not turn her head. Zora. Bless, she choked, but her voice came stronger. I know all. Emma is a good girl. I helped bring her up myself and did all I could for her. And she, she is pure. Marry her. His voice came slow and firm. Emma? I don't love Emma. I love someone else. Her heart bounded and again was still. It was that Washington girl then. She answered dully, groping for words, for she was tired. Who is it? The best woman in all the world, Zora. And is, she struggled at the word madly, is she pure? She is more than pure. Then you must marry her, Bless. I am not worthy of her, he answered, sinking before her. Then, at last, illumination dawned upon her blindness. She stood very still and lifted up her eyes. The swamp was living, vibrant, tremulous. There, where the first long note of night lay shot with burning crimson, burst in sudden radiance the wide beauty of the moon. There pulsed the glory in the air. Her little hands groped and wandered over his close curled hair, and she sobbed, deep-voiced. Will you marry me, Bless? La Envoie Lend me thy ears, O God, the reader, whose father aforetime sent mine down into the land of Egypt, into this house of bondage. Lay not these words aside for a moment's fantasy, but lift up thine eyes upon the horror in this land, the maiming and mocking and murdering of my people, and the imprisonment of their souls. Let my people go, O infinite one, lest the world shudder at... End of chapter 38 Recording by Richard Kilmer, 
Rio Medina, Texas. End of The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W.E.B. DuBose.